Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. Rachel Govenda is a coach, psychologist, an entrepreneur, but also an activist for the rights of uh, people of color. If anyone in the, in the school had a problem, they would come to me. And at some point they said, why, why did they come to you? You're so tiny. <laughs> um, and I never really thought much about it until I went to high school and we had a school psychologist there and he, he had obviously watched me do this. Um, and at one point he, he, you know, we were having a conversation and he said, Rachel, did you, did you think about becoming a psychologist? Because I really see you, you're doing that. And, and, you know, like the way people come to you and, and naturally come to you to talk about things, um, this could be something that, you know, you might want to see as a career. And so someone said, what if there's not enough apples? And I thought, <laughs> out of all the things you could have seen here, you went to, what if, what if there's not enough apples? And, and, you know, for me, I thought, but it's not just the finances. It, it, that's not, it's not just about getting enough money. And the first comment I was thinking of is, well, you know, an, an analogy for if there's not enough apples is because the one person is sitting with rot rotting apples in his house while the other person is starving. Hello, my name is Carsten Draht and you are listening to the podcast Leaders Talk. Our guest today is Rachel Govenda. Rachel Govenda is a, a coach, psychologist, an entrepreneur, but also an activist for the rights for of uh, people of color. And uh, uh, today I will uh, speak with her about um, how she is encountering um, structural racism in her everyday life and how is that affecting her work and what is she doing to overcome this um, and but also how did she become the person that she is today how did she become the coach and entrepreneur that she is today so um, be curious and uh, listen to Rachel when she tells us a bit about her personal story A warm welcome to Rachel Gavender in our podcast, Leaders Talk. Rachel, happy to have you here. Thank you for inviting me, Karsten. Absolutely. Rachel, we go back to 2010, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and we met on a great occasion in um, Cape Town. Um, it was my first exposure to Africa. It changed my world. Um, I was totally unaware of, of things that happened there. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your background, your, your youth in, in South Africa, in this system and, and this society at that point in time? Um, that's a big question. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, yeah, I think, you know, growing up in South Africa was quite strange because, uh, it was still an apartheid. Um, and I grew up in a, um, traditionally, well, um, an, an Indian, South African Indian community. 
Um, so it was quite strange, but I mean, when you're growing up in, in that environment, that's all you know. So you don't really realize it. Um, also in apartheid government, you know, you, the, they were always on the news showing uh, bad things about what was happening. Um, so um, in some sort of way, it was a bit of a brainwashing. Um, but I, I really appreciate, you know, like, for example, my teachers, my history teacher used to uh, really be against apartheid. So he was always sharing his opinion and kind of um, giving us a, um, a, you know, like an accurate view of what's really happening. So that was, that was quite nice. I mean, he was quite passionate about it. <laughs> so he was always saying, you know, this is what it is. And, uh, uh, you know, seeing different races in a, in a certain way is wrong. And the whole apartheid system is uh, incorrect. Also, um, you know, like learning from my, um, for example, my, my family, because um, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, what really happened in, in South Africa. So my grandfather, um, um, he, he, he worked really hard. He got, uh, you know, a substantial amount of wealth, uh, a, a huge property, lots of people, um, you know, uh, living there. And, um, and basically the apartheid government took all of that away. And gave him like a really small house for his family. So, you know, of course you hear about this. And I, and I think for me, I've always had a lot of empathy. So I always, I never met my grandfather. So when I was born, he had, you know, died a long time ago. And I always wondered, you know, what it must be like for someone all your life to have worked for something and have that taken away from you, uh -huh. you know? So I think, you know, it was quite interesting having this different, this, you know, these different views on life. Um, I have two older brothers and one of my older brothers, um, he took me to uh, the library when I was four years old for the first time. And I, I, it was like, you know, this whole magical world opened up and I've been hooked on reading and learning and, you know, just um, seeing more of the world through, through the library and all the books that you can, you can buy. So, uh, or borrow it at that point. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it, it also inspired me in terms of my love for words. I have a huge love for words, mm -hmm. meaning of it and how you can change something and it shifts the way you think about something. I see. And Rachel, when you, when you grow up, I, I just try to understand how it is to Grow up, grow up in such a system because as, as a child, everything is normal, right? Sure. You, 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 you live there and you don't know anything else. So this is normal. Do you recall a situation where kind of for the first time you realized there is a problem? Something is wrong? Um, honestly, no. I, well, maybe pro probably when apartheid um, was removed and, um, you know, you, then you had more uh, people, well, mainly black people coming into the school. I remember uh, there was a lot of um, people, you know, black kids that came in, but they were 23 years old and they were starting at a very, like the beginning grade of high school. And I thought, oh, that's quite strange. And also in interacting with them, um, they seemed quite intimidated. And also I spoke to one of, their, one of the, the girls that came in And she said, how come you're so young, but you're about to finish, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to be finishing school in, in, a, in pretty soon. And for me, it, it kind of opened my eyes to a different type of world 
because um, especially, you know, within the uh, black community, they were given inferior education. Um, it was a, um, a legislated the Bantu uh, Education Act. Um, and, you know, of course, there was uprising uh, and protests. So they burned down a lot of schools because they didn't want um, the, the, the level of education. And also for quite a few schools, they were being t- taught in Afrikaans. So not even in their own language. Um, so, of course, you know, they were held back or weren't able to progress. So for me, that was the first time that I actually thought, well, oh, that's really strange that this, this is happening. So there's, there's one thing that is, is implicit in what you just ex- described, that there is a hierarchy of colors of skin or, of yes. re- or ethnical background. Uh, how did that work? So maybe for the listeners to this podcast, I normally don't describe the color of a skin, but you are a person of color. Yeah. Um, but you're not black. No. So how did that work out? So, uh, so my family came from uh, uh, India 175 years ago, my great-great-grandparents. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, everything was fine until a certain point uh, when the apartheid, uh, mainly Afrikaans um, government, decided to put apartheid into into um into place and i actually only found out when i was working in cape town um as an uh, in, in hr and uh, we had someone come in to tra- to teach us about diversity and to teach us you know what happened because you know not everyone knew what happened it was um it was it was before my time you know for a lot of these things so we had a woman come in and then she explained to me uh the hierarchy and i was I have to say I was really sick by the level of detail that there was, people went into where it was um, British white. Um, no, no, it was uh, uh, Afrikaans white, British white, German, uh, no, not German, sorry, Japanese, um, uh, Indian and colored. So mixed, uh, mixed uh, uh, race and then different levels of the different tribes. And, and for me, I thought, Who came up with this? I mean, who's got the time to go, who is better than who and who gets better access than someone else? And then she also explained that they had something like a paper, uh, a pencil test where they would put a pencil in, in apparently black people or colored people's hair. And if the pencil, pencil fell out, then they would be uh, classified as perhaps white. So It was it was really ridiculous hearing hearing all you know like what people have went through, and also the anger that a lot of people went through. I mean, I think for me, uh, especially you know in the uh, the community where you know most of the Indians came and settled, um, you kind of did the best. You know, you made the best of it. So I I, I didn't really feel I was being um, uh, you know a disadvantage, except for the fact that I realized that my grandfather you know, like everything that he had to give his children was gone. Um, so there was never, you know, uh, like I said, uh, the skewed monopoly game where you think you're working for something and then someone comes and takes it away. And that was basically what happened for a lot of people um, in South Africa. So to some extent, I think um, that really, uh, you know, it, it leaves a pain in, in communities and in families so it, it was spoken about quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And then your love for words and for books and for learning and for knowledge came about. 
Yeah. And at one point, you decided to become a psychologist. Was that a clear-cut thing very early on or very late in life? Yeah, it was actually quite early on because, like I said, I think I was born with a lot, a lot of empathy for people. It must come from, I think, probably my, gra my grandmother. Um, but when I was, like, I think seven or eight in school, um, I, I started, because I'm, I'm a small person, but when I was in school, I was, like, the tiniest person in the school. <laughs> and it was quite funny because uh, a lot of teachers would point it out that any, if anyone in the, in the school had a problem, They would come to me and at some point they said, why, why did they come to you? You're so tiny. <laughs> um, and I never really thought much about it until I went to high school and we had a school psychologist there and he, he had obviously watched me do this. Um, and at one point he, he, you know, we were having a conversation and he said, Rachel, did you, did you think about becoming a psychologist? Because I really see you, you're doing that. And, and, you know, like the way people come to you and, and naturally come to you to talk about things, um, this could be something that, you know, you might want to see as a career. So for me, that was the first time I even thought about it. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think my brothers were too happy about it because I was really good in maths, uh, mathematics in school. So they obviously thought I was going to go into like some scientific <laughs> field. Mm. Um, and, uh, and when I told them a psychologist at that point, uh, they thought, Oh, what are you going to do <laughs> becoming a psychologist? That's not a, re a real job. <laughs> so I suppose they became engineers or scientists themselves. Yeah, I have, uh, I have, uh, my eldest brother is in, uh, finance management and my, uh, the brother that actually babies, uh, used to babysit me, he's in a chemical engineer. So he's the head of, uh, 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 you know, in senior, senior management in South Africa. So, so for him, it was quite strange <laughs> and okay. I, yeah, but, but the ironic thing is now, um, when we talk, he, he, he's started to recognize the value of psychology and coaching so he's always asking me things and sharing things and going oh I actually you know someone did an assessment for me and uh I really found so much value in it and I was like mm, yeah <laughs> it's good to see the turnaround. eventually eventually okay it, it, it took a few years <laughs> yeah and uh, any specializations in psychology did you go for organization psychology or one-on-one or -on -one? I actually went to study clinical psychology, clinical counseling, and I wanted to, to you know, work in, in the hospitals and work in practice to help people. And I think in my honors year, because I also studied neuropsychology and I love the brain. I love learning about it. I, we used to, uh, we ha used to have this um, neuropsychologist lecturer and it was, it was like, You know, when you're in church and someone gives you a message and you're just like, wow, because um, he would, he would, this is the first time I've ever seen and only time I've ever seen it. Um, he would give a lecture and at the end, you know, when it's done and you have to move on, everyone will just sit in silence because we just, you know, like blown away by some of the things he says. Mm -hmm. So I, I did want to study it further, but it was an extra eight years. And <laughs> my mm. mother said, oh, I think you've studied long enough. <laughs> but um, so I did my honors um, in, in neuropsychology, counseling, coaching, um, counseling and clinical. And then in my master's year, I, I switched to organizational psychology, mainly because I started, um, you know, like speaking to uh, quite a few clinical psychologists 
and um, and they they were saying that it's it's quite hard. It's quite hard, um, you know, like uh, working as a, a psychologist. And one woman actually said, some of the things you hear, it's like she can't sleep at night. So I I was thinking, you know, <laughs> should I do this right now? Should I wait? Can I handle it? And then I went and visited um, some of the well, a mental institution in South in in Durban, where I was born, and um, it was really quite traumatic for me to see it. And I just thought, I can't. I don't think I can do this right now. It's too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I used to. I also worked uh, um, in the crisis lines. Um, so we have a, a, a national ch- a crisis line, child line, and lifeline, and. I couldn't sleep at night because I kept thinking about where are these people? How are they doing? So I decided to go into organizational psychology. Um, yeah. And then, um, and then got to go to Cape Town and, and work there and do my internship there. And you worked for a bank? Uh, no, I actually worked for an insurance, a financial oh. insurance. It was um, insurance, banking, asset management, um, and healthcare. How was that in comparison very, you know, <laughs> fact of the matter, HR policies, HR generalist stuff. How was that for you? It's actually quite strange because uh, HR in South Africa is not like HR here. So an HR manager doesn't really get too involved in like the policies and the administrative stuff. Um, so we we had a team of psychologists, um, uh, an entire department. So they would, you know, we would do assessments and um, different training and workshops, which were, was great because then you're surrounded by psychologists. And then a lot of the HR managers were psychologists. So it was quite a strategic role because you would partner with, um, with the, you know, the manager or executive that you were working on more on the strategic thing. So what are we doing? How are we, how are we moving forward? And then you had like a team working on, you know, the admin and things because I'm, <laughs> I'm not an admin person <laughs> at all. So, so it was, it was really nice. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the um, creating things or thinking about, okay, so what kind of behavior, uh, you know, do you want to create here? What kind of conversations? Um, really working with the leaders as well to say, um, how do we put this in place? Um, and even talent management, for example. So, um, you would manage a talent forum and talk about, you know, what kind of pipelines you want to develop to get people up the, the track. And um, I, I did enjoy it. I mean, I had one leader that I worked for. He was the strategy director and uh, he's, he's super intelligent. It was amazing to work for him. Um, and I, I really liked, you know, having the conversation and also it was quite a strategic role because he reported into the managing director. So it's a, it's a really large company. It's about 30,000 employees throughout South Africa. So I got to operate on a strategic level to see how, you know, uh, how things work. It was probably the first time, you know, I worked with like C-suite uh, leaders where I realized, you know, it's also lonely for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they also need, um, you know, people to, to talk to, need some encouragement, uh, need to bounce things off. Um, and actually, it was on the fifth floor, so it was a very special floor. Even when you get out the, the lift, like the carpets were nicer. They had the <laughs> mag- mahogany, you know, tables and furniture <laughs> so, and quiet music <laughs> when you get out. So you know it's a, different, it's a different space. And I remember, like, sometimes I would go to meet with a leader and there'll be another, you know, um, one of the other 
uh, managing directors or something would come out and they want to talk to you because they haven't spoken to enough people. So it was quite, it was quite an interesting uh, experience. I, I like being part of it, especially the developing side. And then somehow the desire came to do more of that, to be more of a trusted advisor. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I get bored very easily, so I don't like routine. <laughs> at one point, you know, it felt like I was doing it. I could do it in my sleep. And at that point, I thought, this is not what I wanted to do. I really wanted, you know, I like the one-on-one or the small groups, uh, not really trying to focus on, okay, so what kind of policies? And I had written quite a few policies or pro- processes for um, for different, you know, different teams by then and different organizations. Um, um, sections that I thought, okay, I'm done now. I've done it, you know, enough times. And um, then I decided to to start, you know, my own practice or my own business as a psychologist because I said I wanted to go back to the the one on one. So, uh, you know, luckily I was able to consult as a psychologist um, still for for because I, I was I am quite outspoken, so I was well known. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so when I left, I got I was very lucky. I got a lot of work from them. And I worked as a, a consulting psychologist, uh, working on, uh, you know, development, leadership development assessments, uh, selection and, and development as well. Um, and I enjoyed it because then it would be like a two or three day um, process. You do a whole lot of assessments and then I could write a, a report to say, these are your strengths. These are your development areas. And um, are you ready to progress to the next level? And um, it was it was it was interesting because I'm quite analytical and I love analyzing things, um, and uh, and also to help people. But it was a 45 minute per person conversation, and in 45 minutes, you know, you say, okay, well, these are your strengths, these are your development areas, and they would say, okay, how do I develop it? And you can't really, you know, give them times up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I would try to give as much as possible and then go, I'm sorry, the time is up, and you could see them looking like perplexed and confused of like, what am I supposed to do now? And I found it very, uh, yeah, dissatisfying to, to leave them that way to go, okay, well, you're not good at this. So <laughs> go develop it. So then I thought of, um, you know, I had heard of coaching and I thought, um, I, I went for training in the UK actually, uh, um, with a, with a program for six months. And then I did the advanced program, which is in the UK and the U S uh, luckily, I could do it virtually at that point while well, it was more telephonic. Um, and then I was able to to integrate it into what I was doing, which was great. And I was also still, you know, getting work. Uh, they added me on as an executive coach. So that was quite that was quite nice to be able to do something that I feel like, you know, I'm giving back something to each leader and helping them to grow. Mm, I see. And then somehow, Rachel, the there was a development where you ended up in Europe. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to study further and do a PhD in, in neuroscience and psycho, uh, psychology and leadership. Um, and I had found a great, you know, a great um, supervisor who I really, I think, you know, this is one of the things when you're working to study further, uh, you want a supervisor that you actually really click with and that has a lot of uh, knowledge. So I, we had had a couple of conversations and actually I was looking forward to working with her and then found out that she, um, well, her funding fell through because she didn't have international experience. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. So unfortunately she said, well, maybe you need to look at move, you know, like going to Europe and trying, um, uh, trying to find something, um, there. And, um, I did find something in Berlin, but they wanted me to do it full time. The, the mind and brain, um, Institute. And I thought, I don't, you know, when, once you start working to go back to being a full-time student, it's not that nice. Mm. Um, and then I tried, um, yeah, with, in Belgium and uh, in Rotterdam here in the Netherlands. And I wasn't able to find the match that I was looking for, unfortunately. So that, that was a bit of a pity for me, you know. So, but I ended up in the Netherlands. <laughs> and, you know, I've been working, uh, I've been working for Brussels anyway. So it was quite nice to be able to, uh, to continue to work and, and get some international experience. So that's how I ended up here. And what brought you to the Netherlands? You were in Brussels or in, in Rotterdam? And then there was something with the weather, I recall, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never getting away from the horrible weather. I'm never getting away from it. Um, no, it was, just, it was just, you know, opportunity to move. And I really like the, the Hague um, because it's, uh, it's close to the beach. Um, I've always lived close to the beach. Mm. So, it, yeah, so I like them more than, than in Brussels and in Belgium. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think I also said I had quite bad experience, quite bad racism in, in Belgium. So I, I wasn't clean, uh, you know, keen on living there anymore. Mm. Yeah. So talking about that, or before we move there, so you're now working as a coach slash psychologist freelance. That's what you do with your own company, Dynamic at Work. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, got it. And now let's, let's talk about this um, because the one thing I, I realized is, um, or I didn't realize, I have to say, um, is this topic of structural or systemic racism. and. Um, You mentioned you're an outspoken person and that also shows on your posts. And, yeah. uh, and I, at one point I, I, I saw a post of you where you said a friend asked me, and that was um, after the uh, death of George Floyd mm. and, uh, um, and obviously the, the fact that there was a lot of violence going on, a lot of posts and all of that. Yeah. And, and uh, you said um, a friend asked me the other day, if I would experience racism in the Netherlands and I love because, love because this is what white people don't see. So what is it that white people don't see? Um, I don't see, I don't think they see uh, racism or they don't, uh, they don't um, classify it as racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the thing. Um, I mean, either, either you're racist and then you are, <laughs> you know, being racist, or if, you, if you're not, um, people don't necessarily see it that way. You know, they, they, they normally are quite surprised, so that's confusing. Uh, like when I lived in Belgium, uh, you know, the Belgian friends I would speak to and say I experienced racism, they go, oh, I never thought, uh, heard about that. This is the first time. And then when I spoke to, um, you know, I talked to random people and I would speak to some black people, um, you know, that live there and I tell them and they go, oh yeah, I, I know that it happens all the time. And I thought that was quite a, quite a strange thing. Um, because even the Belgian people growing up there had never realized that this was a thing. 
and I thought that was that was quite strange to to see um, because it it seems to be very subtle. And I think in the Netherlands it's less subtle in some places. So you know, with Dutch being so direct, so when when something happens, then you know someone would see something. But at the same time, I mean, I was explaining to some friends uh, something, and they go, "Oh, that happens!" Or you know, that happened to me. And I said, "But." The, you need to look at it in comparison of how that happens. You know, it's not just uh, uh, something happens, but it's the way it is happening. So it happens every single time. You you might have experienced something where someone asks where you're from. Uh, it's very different from you know, like when someone asks me where my great great grandparents are from. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was it was quite interesting. And I mean, I don't know. You've probably seen. Um, I, I shared the, the video of the, uh, there was a social experiment that was done um, in 2018 and 2016 between, between that time. And they had uh, three uh, p- uh, uh, men, three boys, yeah, men, um, a black uh, person, a brown person and a white person trying to break into, uh, and they were dressed exactly the same. They were the same height, etc. And they were trying to break into like, break the chain of a bike um and the person who was white who was breaking the chain and you know in a park and people were going past um some people looked but nobody said anything and um not not one person called the police and um uh, in fact two people like two groups of people came to help him to break the chain and one was the actual community the 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 community uh, helpers um they actually came to with the you know clipper to break the chain and they did an interview afterwards and they asked, okay, well, why didn't you say anything? And everyone said, oh, he's like me. He's probably a father. Um, he, he's dressed nice, which is ironic because everyone was dressed the same. And, um, and they made up a lot of excuses for why it's fine. And then the brown person, I don't know where he was from, but um, he, you know, was doing it. And uh, he had more people stop and ask him, what are you doing? Um, and, uh, well, of course, no, none of them were saying anything about what they were doing and they, you know, quite a few of them phoned the police and then the black guy was, was doing it. Almost every single person stopped except I think like two people who said, um, when they interviewed him, uh, interviewed them, they said, well, I was scared he was going to hit me or something. Uh, but every single person phoned the police on him. And they were all dressed the same. And that's why I say, you know, sometimes you can only see it in comparison because it's not obvious, you know, like really, really straight out racism. Because, you know, I was thinking about afterwards and if I had said, oh, I saw a black guy that was trying to break a lock and people phoned the police, everyone will say, yeah, but that's normal. We'll do that for anyone. And I thought it was quite a powerful, you know, experiment to show that, yeah, racial bias does exist. So it is racial bias and is that what is the underlying emotion is it is it fear of being someone being visibly different than than me or what do you think this is i think it's a fear but i think it's also you know like if you talk about systemic racism or structural racism it's things that have been put in place from a very long time so you're born into a certain way of thinking about something um And, um, and, and, and people sometimes don't even realize, and that's why I spoke about racial bias versus racism, because I think sometimes you can have racial bias, but not necessarily act out on it, uh, and be racist. Hmm. 
I've talked to many people and I think I can also echo that for myself. So for example, in 2015, we had this refugee crisis all over Europe, right? And we had a lot of different looking people in Germany in places where they normally wouldn't flock or would be. And obviously they were in camps, they were typically male, young, young uh, lads hanging together. Yeah. And then if a, if, a, if a girl or woman would walk by, there's all kinds of concerns, all kinds of fears. And so how do you, what is the, I'm wondering, what is the appropriate thing to go about this? Well, I mean, when you have this feeling of, who is this a difficult, is this a dangerous situation or not? Yeah. Well, and I think this is why it's important to have conversations. And, you know, I said last time we spoke, the, the narrative is important. So mm -hmm. what kind of narrative are you using and being aware of things? Like um, when, I, when I grew up, um, we had this book, um, uh, a famous author in the UK, Enid Blyton, and um, there was a character called the Gollywog. And it's basically this, you know, same, it looks exactly like a black person. Um, and it was always acting stupid, always being, you know, ridiculous. Um, and growing up as a child, I didn't, I didn't know. I, it just seemed like a character. I thought, oh, it's, it's kind of cute or whatever. But then when you grow up, you find out, you know, at some point they said, oh, it's racist. And they removed all the books because it's from the UK. And I remember thinking about it as an adult and I went, yeah, that's right. It is racist. They shouldn't have used it because it's the, it's the connotation that you think, okay, so a black person is like this. And, and I think that's the thing. I mean, of course, we all grow up with, um, uh, you know, certain thinking. People that are not like us are whatever. And I think, I think that's, the, you know, that's important to, to, to bear in mind. And, and, you know, like if you think about how historically things have evolved, um, uh, uh, you know, most, most people of color are less, less wealthy because, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say something controversial, but because of colonialism, colonialism where most of these countries were, you know, removed of all of their wealth. Um, so for me, it's understanding that and saying, okay, so, so why, you know, why is this the case? Why do I think this way? Where does it come from? Um, and, and actually try to, you know, like unpack it, you know, like I've been reading a lot, you know, for example, I lived in Belgium and they had, you know, King Leopold II. And I remember people told me, oh, this was our king. And I, I remember one person saying, oh, he wasn't very nice. So you think, oh, well, maybe, you know, there's something wrong with him. And then I found out from a friend of mine who, um, her, her ancestors were originally from the Congo, um, or, well, the DRC now, but then it was the Congo. And she told me, she said, oh, you should, you should check out, you know, things about this, you know, these people and what they've done. And then the, the CNN actually did a whole um, um, article about, like, some of the things he did in, in, in the Congo just to um, get rubber, for example. And he literally was cutting off children's hands and feet and killing people or killing the, the, the wives of farmers because he wanted them to stop farming in order to gather more rubber for him because that was, you know, when the cars and things started taking off. Industrialization. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so he, he obviously wanted more, more money. And, um, and, he, and literally you took an entire nation, entire country's livelihood and way of being and you destroyed it. 
just for, for money. So when you think about that, you wonder, okay, so why are black people, you know, why do they seem poor? Why are they, why are they angry? Um, to understand that and then unpack it and then, of course, you know, have empathy and say, okay, so what does this mean? You know, how do I look at this differently? Um, and, and now, you know, uh, I saw in, in, um, in Belgium, they are taking down his statues. Uh, every, well, you're seeing it everywhere as well. So I think, I think the narrative of history, um, you know, like the way it's being portrayed, uh, it, was, it was also skewed. It wasn't really say, you know, uh, told that these people uh, were not heroes. They were part of a system as well, and they believed they needed to gather more wealth and more power, and this is what they did. They hurt a lot of people. I mean, the same thing for Christopher Columbus. I was reading up on him last week. You know, he, he's portrayed as, <laughs> well, I've always said, as discovering America. Oh, so going to another country and you have a whole group of people living there <laughs> means you've discovered it. I think people discovered it already. And then I found out that he apparently took a, a huge amount of the Native Americans and tried to set them to Spain. I did not know that. And 90% of the Native Americans died. 90%. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that, why is history not giving, you know, saying the right thing? In schools, they're still being taught the same thing. I, I learned in school that Christopher Columbus was this great explorer. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's what I learned. Yeah. So, so I, think, I think people are not understanding just how skew things were. Um, and then also for me, I find the value system is different. So in the Western world, the value system seems to have been power and money and it's okay to conquer because winner takes all, you know, kind of mentality. Um, whereas, you know, like I lived in South Africa and I've always found that even poor people, they don't have a lot, but they'll still give to you, you know, they'll still give you or share with you. So I think that also needs to, to change because, I mean, I shared something about the giving tree um, where the, the tree is skewed. And one person gets more and the other person can't reach it. And they talked about that's inequality. And if, this, uh, if the, you put a ladder up so the other person can get it, it's called equality. So, so it's kind of the same level. And then if you, uh, if you put a, a bit extra for the person who the tree is skewed away from, that's called equity. And if you try to get this tree straightened, that's called justice. And I shared that. Which, which it seems right, right? So if you have something that's been skewed for a long time, there's differences in e uh, equality, equity, and justice. And it's the same thing for, for, for women as well. And so <laughs> someone said, what if there's not enough apples? And I thought, <laughs> out of all the things you could have seen here, you went to, what if, what if there's not enough apples? And, and, you know, for me, I thought, but it's not just the finances. It, it, that's not, it's not just about getting enough money. And the first comment I was thinking of is, well, you know, an, an analogy for if there's not enough apples is because the one person is sitting with rot rotting apples in his house while the other person is starving, you know? Mm. So, so for me, it was about, it's, it's about respect. It's about access, you know, access to education. It's about, you know, being able to live in neighborhoods that you want without, uh, you know, um, being um, abused or feeling unwelcome. It's about so many, so many different things um, that, that I think sometimes the, the argument 
is not the same argument. And I think that's, that's the difference that you have because people say, oh, okay, so you want us to give you something, you know, and that's, it's not the case. It's not, it's not a pie that if you give me more, there's less for you. There should be a case of for human, human dignity. Everyone gets, you know, treated as a human being. So I learned a lot today. So what I liked is, and what I think is really important is the differentiation between racism and the racial bias and how the narrative meaning, how we talk about our shared history kind of does a collective brainwash or installs this bias in a certain way. Yeah. And how these biases, which are by definition unconscious, right? These are kind of implanted into people. And that means it, what is kind of implanted is what we deem as normal, what we deem as appropriate. Yeah. And that normal is kind of skewed, if, yes. I, if I hear you correctly, plus all the economic circumstances that kind of inter, intermix with this. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and I, I mean, this, this one friend that made this comment with the apples, I think this is a very honest comment right because right. i i experience a lot of i mean when we go back for example to this refugee crisis over here um i i recall wealthy friends who had exactly that fear and um analogies were made with big migration periods in human history where you know the different tribes kind of came and invaded uh, europe that kind of fear was surmounted in people seem kind of out of whack, out of context, if you give the numbers. But I think deep down there, if you are on top of the food chain or if you're on top on the pyramid of the ethnical pyramid, obviously there is a fear of losing something, right? Yeah. And, and the question is, what, what, is there something that can be done about this? That's a good question. And I've been I've been thinking about it quite a quite a bit. Um, I mean, I think in Europe a lot of people are unaware of the the suffering that's going on. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, you've been to uh, to Africa, um, you must have seen you know like the townships and the poverty, and in, because you see it, you recognize how much you have compared to someone else. And you can also see the humanity behind, you know, what's going on. Um, and, I, and, and I think, you know, it's very easy to kind of put blinders on and, mm -hmm. and have a rational discussion or an economic discussion about something um, versus when you see someone starving or when you see children dying. Um, and I think that's, that's important to, to recognize. I mean, I'm not, not saying, you know, everyone from different countries should all, you know, migrate here. I think you need to, to recognize, you know, maybe from a political point of view, and I'm not a political person. I always try not to get into the argument, but from a political pers uh, point of view, if you're thinking about systems, leaders need to be able to influence these things to say, well, what, what do we need to do to get into these countries? I've been reading up a lot about, you know, like, um, uh, all the different countries that are at war and, and having uh, a lot of problems. And most of the time it was because uh, like the U.S. got involved in something and they caused, you know, problems. And that's why, because they were funding one person or the other person and, you know, there's, there's unrest because of that. 
and, and you have to recognize that you have a responsibility. If you caused it, you know, you have to have a responsibility to make it right in the country because, um, I mean, I was helping uh, uh, with some friends, some Syrian refugees that moved to the Netherlands and they also had a lot of hatred uh, against them. But when you ask them, will you go back? Every single one of them wants to go back to their country. If it was peaceful, I want to go back to my country. Nobody wants to stay here. Um, and, <laughs> and people don't recognize that, that, that uh, you know, because in World War II, I saw a lot of things where people, a lot of Europeans were going to Africa mm -hmm. for safety. Mm -hmm. And so nobody talks about that. I mean, you must have seen uh, photos of it. There was mass uh, migration to try and get, get out of Europe and go into, into to Africa. Nobody said, hang on, let's look, at, <laughs> let's look at policy here. And I think that's the thing you have to look at because it always comes down to your values um, because I think that, that is something that's important and it has to be a real thing, a real discussion. It cannot be some theoretical you know, thing. Of course, it translates into policy. It translates into what you need to do. But the more you argue of we shouldn't let them in our country, we're not looking at well, what other ideas do we have? How do we how do we help resolve this? Mm, mm. Let's let's also look at businesses because obviously, as an as an entrepreneur, I'm also and as a consultant, just like you, it is also about. So, what can we do constructively about it, right? Yeah. And um, for example, if we look at if we look at gender uh, topics, there is evidence to say if you have at least one woman on the board. Um, there is uh, an increase in profitability. There is an increase in employee trust. And the more you have, not not the more you have, but the more you go towards the balance, the better you are off performance-wise, right? Yeah. That that helps the argumentation. It is still hard, right? Uh, some argue you need a quota to start with. Others are violently, violently opposing that. But there is a bit of evidence. Is there anything comparable that you are aware of when it comes to ethnical diversity? No, but I do. And I mean, again, I'm not no expert. It's just things I've been thinking about. And I've, I've noticed that there's too much of a marginalization. I mean, um, when I lived in, uh, uh, when I moved to the Netherlands, someone told me, um, you can, you know, like in The Hague, you can move everywhere, but don't move to this area because it's dangerous. So I'm not, I don't know The Hague and I'm, I just took at the word, him at his word and I thought, okay. And I looked for, you know, places that he said it's fine. And then only like last year, some, uh, at some point, uh, you know, I, s I spoke to someone else, a person of color and I said, yeah, this is what they said. And they actually got angry because they said, do you know what it's like? And when I went into that area, I mean, it, it is, it is less Uh, safe but if you look at it it's mainly you know uh, foreigners and it's so I live in, a, in an expat area but it's you know kind of upper class <laughs> foreigners the acceptable foreigners and here it is it is uh, people that maybe are not as well um, um, yeah well off as, as uh, like mm -hmm. expats right mm -hmm. and um, and if you look at it it's foreigners and that's supposed to be a dangerous part of it but it was so it was so strange for me because it's so marginalized um and also i mean uh, a few years ago the mayor was waiting she was visiting you know the area and then she's waiting for a tram and someone robbed her and it was in the newspaper and we thought okay well if it's that dangerous surely something should be done about it but i think i think that's the problem when when it's marginalized you know and said 
okay, so, so you guys don't actually belong. And I thought about it also with the Brussels um, uh, bombing, because I always travel. I was supposed to travel on that metro the next day, and it was bombed the day before. And I was thinking about it, because again, where the, the bombers kind of radicalized comes from a, from a certain part of, the, of Belgium that is also marginalized. So it's, it's, so you're experiencing racism, you marginalize, you're not accepted. There's a lot of anger building mm-hmm. up, right? And of course you resort to crime because you're not part of society. You're not integrated into society. So how, how are you supposed to learn anything about the, the country? How are you supposed to get anything? And I think if you look at it, you really have to look at, okay, so how, how are we bringing people into a country to make them feel part of something? Um, not feeling like you, you don't belong and not having access. I mean, I've seen a lot of things where, for example, in Amsterdam, foreigners, uh, certain types of foreigners uh, cannot find housing. So whenever they apply, they immediately told, oh, no, it's, uh, it's taken. At one point, someone actually applied and said, uh, someone was advertising and they said, we don't want foreigners because they make smelly food. And I, <laughs> I thought, oh, wow, okay, that's, uh, <laughs> that's openly, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's more than a bias, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, okay, well, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> tried some Dutch food or made it. It's pretty smelly <laughs> as well. So I was like, <laughs> but I saw it and I thought, okay, so, so it's a way of thinking about something. And when, when you don't integrate into, uh, into a place and don't feel like you belong, what do you do then? Mm. Uh, and I think that's the problem because then you relate it to um, you relate it to your identity. Your identity is not that you're from this country. You're not part of this country. So I think I think um, to answer your question, it's it's again how do we bridge the gap? How do we have conversations? How do we look at things? How do we set up you know like communities differently? Um, and, and what kind of things do you have to make sure that people feel like they're part of something, not feel like you're, you don't belong here? Mm. And um, I think another, another point, Rachel, is, I mean, if I, I compare this again to the gender discussion, right? Yeah. Um, in the moment where you have a woman in a senior position, you have a role model. And that is a role model for men and women um, yeah. to, oh, it's working and there is an example and there is a way and it's rough and, you know, integrating family and work and all of that or yeah. why, why is the woman taking care of family and not the husband, whatever. All of that, there is evidence. So I think creating positive role models yeah. would be one way that businesses could take, right? Yeah. Now, we've been thinking about this in our company, for example, and we are deeply connected with one of the largest coaching associations, the ICF there is not a single person of color that we could even hire. Not that we are aware of. Right. Okay. And so it is sometimes it's, it's, I mean, obviously coach is a very special profession, right? You have, you need multiple experiences, multiple trainings and all of that. Not many people maybe go down that road, but in some, in some areas of society, in some areas of businesses, it looks like, persons of color are less represented even so that we even can't make them a, a role model. Would you agree? Or is that my too narrow mind? I think it might be too narrow. Okay. 
Um, I think, you know, again, it comes back to networks. So if you, if you know people and you're in the right networks, you can find plenty of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, personally, I've never actually even registered with the ICF because I had the ICF and then some other thing. And I thought, okay, do I really need it? Is it really urgent? Um, because, and then I wanted to do the PCC level. So I haven't even registered for it because I was like, well, what's the point? It doesn't really affect the work that I do until it gets to a point where I really need to do it. Um, it's just a nice to have. It's not really being some, I mean, and I have written for the ICF uh, for their blog, actually. <laughs> um, so I was a member, but I I'd never gone through the, the certification and I've just been too busy. Um, so I think there's people that you can find but it's always the network. You need to be able, it's the same thing for women. There's lots of women, you know, that are looking or interested in position, but it is the network that you mm-hmm. have to get into. So as a person, you know, uh, a baby um, uh, of color, you probably, you know, you could be probably be more linked to it. Also as a woman, you meet more women that are, you know, within that network or you pay attention to it. So I think it exists. Um, but maybe not as much as, you know, like for example, men or, uh, or, you know, a white uh, coach. Um, and that's why I think also you need to, you need to develop a talent pipeline because mm-hmm. that's, that's what we would do in South Africa, you know, cause, um, we didn't have enough people that were ready. So we had people, we just didn't have enough people that, that got the exposure, uh, that we're looking for because of course they were held back. So mm-hmm. then you have to bring them in. And I mean, I remember ironically, actually I was recruiting for a position and it was quite a high position. So it was a headhunter that had contacted me and given me a black gentleman's, uh, you know, CV and I'd interviewed him. And actually the, <laughs> the, the headhunter was married to a politician, quite a prominent politician. So of course she knows a lot of people. But she had brought in this gentleman, and this is also the other thing. It was he thought, and this was quite early on. Um, he had thought because I'm black, I should be able to get a high position, of course, because that's how um, companies were using the system. I'm going to get one token black person. It's a window dressing. He's not really good, but I'll pay him a lot of money. He can just sit around doing nothing. But I don't believe in that because I feel like that's actually doing more harm. Um, to that person's psyche and also to all you know people of color because now you you immediately get associated with your window dressing you're not really competent to do anything and he had told me oh um, you should pay me more because I'm black and I said I will not pay you more because you're black I will pay you um, for your competence level so I can bring you in at a lower level pay you less and grow you to that to that level and he didn't, he didn't like it. And I thought, well, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to make a, you know, a, a compromise. And I c- continued to look and eventually I found a, a, a young black woman, um, which was really rare to find because it was um, within the legal um, um, role, job family. And I told her the same thing. She was willing. She had the attitude, the right attitude, and she was able to grow up and, you know, get to that level very quickly, was really good because her attitude was right and she was willing to learn to um, to be exposed to things that she never got before. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the talent pipeline is important. And Rachel, you are also taking a stand publicly, if I can consider Facebook posts public, but it, they are. And uh, I mean, you're not, you know, like very strongly putting one position, but you're firmly 
holding their ground of being aware, creating awareness around racial bias and explaining how this structure of racial biases or racist um, behavior back to colonization kind of plays a role in today's world. So I, I see you as an, you're trying to educate or, or shed light, yeah. right? This is, this is what I observe. Now, um, what do you observe in terms of reaction of your environment to your taking a stand on this? Uh, it's been quite surprising because I've had a lot of resistance. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of resistance. It was really uh, surprising to me because uh, some people try to negotiate. Some people uh, try to have a theoretical, uh, you know, uh, argument. Someone actually said to me, what if all we can give is, equ is uh, equality? And I thought, okay, uh, <laughs> well, firstly, why do you think that's all we can give or you can give? Also, have you even considered what, what that means, you know, in terms of um, just equality? Because you can never, it, it's like running a race and you say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll give you the same start time. But the one person's like 10 kilometers down the road <laughs> and then you're running and you go, why, why didn't you win? You know, you're always behind. You never, you never seem to be good at what you're doing. So, so it's, it's really trying to unpack it. And for me, that was quite surprising. I had one person who doesn't live the same country as me. And, and I was talking about my experience in Europe and he reacted and said, I was calling him a racist and he doesn't like that. I'm making him think certain things. And I thought, wow, okay. I really wanted to say, well, if the shoe fits, <laughs> <laughs> Because you've seen, you've seen some of my posts and all my posts have said uh, what I experienced, what people, friends of mine have experienced. So this is my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and when you react from that point of view, then, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, you need to take responsibility for your own reaction. And, and that's why I said this is, these are difficult conversations. This is an uncomfortable time because you have um, people of color, or, you know, especially in, in, uh, in the U.S., that have really, um, uh, they have really uh, a lot of anger, a lot of, uh, you know, just um, frustration and rage, actually. They have a lot of rage mm. because it's been simmering underneath for such a long time. And, and then you have on the other side, you know, um, white people who, who are, you know, either confused, surprised, Uh, some of them are really uncomfortable about this. Uh, some of them are angry because it's like, okay, so now what do you want me to do? On the other hand, I've seen some people that have immediately said, this, I did not know it exists. I want to learn more. Show me, tell me. Um, a lot of uh, friends that have been sharing. Um, and, you know, like you see in the US, there's been a lot of policy change, mm -hmm. um, which I think is amazing to see. And, and I, I always think of, like I've been thinking about revolutions, you know, when you think about revolutions, because if you try, you've worked to change, you know, change takes a long time for some people, a lot of resistance, but when you have revolutions happening, it goes much faster because now suddenly statues are coming down. Suddenly, um, you know, there's a law in, in the U S for Brianna, Brianna Ta uh, Taylor, I think the, the, that was killed in her sleep. There's a law for, for not shooting or not having the, the no knock, uh, warrant. Um, there's been all kinds of things that have been changing. I mean, even Band-Aid I found out is now finally for the first time making, um, Band-Aid plasters for different skin colors. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, yeah. it's like they finally realized oh there's more than one color <laughs> <laughs> so so i think i think that's good in terms of the pressure but in terms of what we need to do for companies i i think i think you know there's an opportunity to share and there's an opportunity for people to be educated but there's also you know within companies it's what how how are we recruiting what what are our you know our biases how are we doing talent management what kind of network circles do we need to have um what kind of culture do we need to create i have a a client uh, i worked with was female only female at a certain level a very senior level and i was coaching her about networking and of course you know trying to grow and she said i will never go to a network function uh, because it's very sexist. When I go there, I'm the only female, and all the men seem to think I'm interested in something with them. Mm. And so, so, yeah. So we were talking about it, um, and again, it's it's a cultural thing uh, within a country. Um, um, and well, actually, in the Netherlands, <laughs> which was surprising to me. And uh, and the more I tried to speak about it, at some point, I realized you cannot, as one person, one female, change an entire culture. You need to be able to work with leaders from the top down to say, okay, so this is your strategy. And that's why I said last, the, you know, you have to know your why. Companies need to know why do I need to hire women? Why do I need to hire, you know, people of Canada? Why do I need to do anything differently? Because once you understand the why, you can actually start embedding it in terms of the culture. You, can, you have to change the culture. I mean, she said, she said to me that she was going to leave. Um, you know, in a few years, and I've actually seen that she's, she has left, and there's nothing you can do because she's like, no matter what I do, it's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so again, the culture and the conversations and, and things within, within the company needs to change. Rachel, thank you. That was very enlightening. Uh, there is a lot of things uh, that, that I've learned. What, what I wonder is when you, when you put yourself out there, when you're taking a stand and you're getting all this feedback that is not so nice what makes you what makes you opt- optimistic what makes you looking to a future where you say it can be better despite all this hatred despite all this violence despite all these racial biases what what makes you optimistic going forward i think uh, what makes me optimistic is seeing some of the changes and hearing some of the conversations And I always think what makes me optimistic for going forward, you know, you think about leadership development, you always talk about the heat experiences. You don't, and and if I look at my life, I learned the most when I have been going through a tough time. I hate, I hate the fact that there was two, but when I was going to a difficult time, I learned the most about myself. I learned the most about who I am, what kind of person I want to be, what do I need to change? Um, and I think when I see this, I see it as a heat experience. It's uncomfortable for both sides, um, but if we can get through it and if we can continue to talk, it makes me optimistic that the next generation could be different. And actually, when I see, you know, like some of the younger kids, I see that there already is a difference because there's, a, there's something changing in the way they see things. So that makes me optimistic. That's good to see. What would be a great closing question that I should ask you, Rachel? A great closing question. Oh. Well, you know, you, you, you sent me some questions before and you said, what, is, what are some of your role models when it comes to leadership? Mm-hmm. 
And I was thinking of like some famous, uh, famous, um, you know, leaders. And actually, they've never touched me. Um, I, I was thinking of, you know, role models that I've had in my family. So my mother, who t- always taught me to stand up and be courageous. My dad, who was always, he was always, ge- uh, uh, you know, very gentle. But he always saw the good, you know, and he always believed in the good in me. Um, and he always, you know, kind of called it out. My brother, who taught me how to think and to think critically um, and to always continue to learn. Um, and I have, yeah, my aunt and uncle who, um, you know, went in missionaries uh, in, in Zululand. Uh, they were so generous and loving to the community there, which also taught me about growing up, you know, like seeing people that are not like me and, and learning that it's, it's good to, to, you know, love them. It's good to be able to feed them. It's good to be part of this community because I, I thought it was just amazing. And, and then friends, I had a friend once who, um, who when I was doing my internship, he said, uh, cause I thought, Oh, psych- I'm a psychologist now. And he said, you're not a psychologist, you're a leader. And he said it so many times that most of the time I, I was really confused by it. And he was like, you're more than a psychologist. And I never got it until a few years ago. So I think in terms of role models, we all, you know, can have a role, uh, or play play a role model um, role in different people's life by showing them the kind of people they can be. Wow, wow, yeah, that's strong. Thank you for putting that up. That uh, I'm actually a bit speechless. I have to think this through. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that, Rachel. Uh, I learned tons about you and your background, and the, also I felt a lot of the roots that you're coming from, and that make you strong. They give you strength and give you that outlook and that positivity despite all the stuff that are not so good, which I think is great, which is a great energy um, because that's what people want to follow, right? You want to follow somebody who shows a way, who is positive about the things, who has a can-do attitude. So I'm looking very, very much forward to follow your lead going forward and, and uh, observe what's happening. And uh, maybe in a couple of uh, months or years' time, we'll talk again on that podcast. So thank that's you, great. Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's been nice talking to you. Absolutely. All the best. Thanks. And what have you learned, Carsten? I've learned tons from speaking with Rachel. I think she has a very clear picture on where does this come from? What are the subtle structures that we don't see? And I find this really interesting because it it does make sense that this narrative plays a big role and how it creates... A, a bias in an entire society, how we talk about our history, how we talk about the period of uh, colonialism and all the people that were um, kind of explorers and, and are glorified, but uh, on the other hand also started um, to enslave people um, and, and to, to kind of you know go back to that history to take the conclusions what it is for today and uh, what also we can do in the business world to kind of break that paradigm and and start installing first role models. So that was really insightful for me, and uh, I hope it was insightful for you too. And what else is new at Leadership Choices? We have developed a new product that is called Leadership Hacks. Leadership Hacks are a five-page document that is produced one edition per week, which gives practical helps for leaders from different perspectives, like leading yourself 
organizing your work, leading virtually, and also accompanying your people emotionally. And from those different perspectives, we discuss different topics like innovation, um, like going about crisis, like motivating people, being strategic, but also how do you um, care for diversity? How do you make sure that um, your biases are under check? And that is obviously also inspired by the other things that we do around the uh, panel discussions and the other interviews in this podcast. So um, if you want to um, get in touch to have a look at the leadership hacks, um, please um, send us a mail and uh, we'll be happy to share samples of them with you. What can we look forward to in the next episode of Leaders Talk? Our next guest in this podcast is going to be Meinolf Meyer. Meinolf works for Google in Germany. Um, but other than this, he founded um, an NGO called Strong Democracy. And uh, this NGO is uh, active in helping politicians dealing with hate and with threats to their uh, personal health and livelihood. And uh, so I would like to, I will talk to him to understand what drove him uh, to this discussion and or to this decision and uh, what they are actually doing. So, um, yeah, I hope to uh, see you at uh, the next podcast with Meinolf Meyer. This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by leadership choices. If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to leaderstalk at leadershipchoices.com. Thank you for listening.